0: This is Jewish Board Talk with Cherie Zifford, only on 101.9 High fm Dr. Karen Murphy is the Director of International Strategy for Facing History and Ourselves, a global NGO. The NGO believes that rigorous historical analysis combined with the study of human behavior heightened students' understanding of racism, religious intolerance, Prejudice. Dr. Murphy was a guest of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center earlier this year to talk on this topic, but I'm pleased to have her now join me from New York to tell me what this actually means. Dr. Murphy, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I wish I was
1: in South Africa to join you.
0: Well, you've got snow and we've got sun, so I guess... I guess we are the luckier ones at the moment, unless you like snow. Um, Dr. Murphy, it's a lot of um, rigorous historical
1: analysis, study of human behavior. What is it that you do? So Facing History works um, in education, and we work primarily with educators of adolescents. And the reason why adolescence is because that's that time in human development when people are asking questions and thinking about issues of justice and fairness. And, you know, there's a lot for us to consider, actually, as adults, about how it is that in, adult, in adolescence there's this sort of blossoming that we try to reclaim in adulthood (laughs) in terms of thinking again about fairness and justice and other things. So Facing History really was created out of this idea that – Um, Young people are moral philosophers. They should be trusted with the truth of history, not given games and abstractions to say, what if this thing happened? But instead, let's actually look at the past and talk about what did happen and the choices people did make and think about the implications of those choices, whether they were good or bad or indifferent. And then ask them to make connections, not comparisons as if it's the exact same thing, but connections between the past and what they're studying in their own lives today. Where do you see that you have choice or agency? Where have you been, um, have examples of feeling indifferent or... Um, see bystander behavior in your own life or where you've stood up. So part of Facing History's work is to, as you said, rigorously look at history. And we use an interdisciplinary lens, so it's not just facts and figures and this thing happened, but it's looking at um history through the lens of human behavior and going before the events happen. So let's say in the case of apartheid in South Africa, we wouldn't start the moment it was officially declared, right? But instead, what led to it? How did South Africa get to that place? What are the implications of it? What was it built upon? What choices did people make? And it's also choices like who stood in the way of it? Who stood up? Who spoke out? Who said this isn't right? And then a a cornerstone of facing history is then to look at issues of judgment, memory, legacy, and participation. So you're not just stuck into this, you know, nightmare of a terrible history. You're saying, what can I learn? What does it mean to make a difference in my own community? So it's a two-generation approach where we, in order to reach adolescence, work deeply with teachers and also in some cases with principals and administrators who translate facing history for their context but that means that adults who are citizens themselves are wrestling with these big questions and thinking about what does this mean for me and that's that's the heart of our work and we also develop resources and offer you know professional development events and follow up support and all kinds of things but but that's what that's what we're doing. Dr. Murphy, you're talking
0: about training people to be upstanders rather than bystanders. What is the response by your your students or learners?
1: First of all, they're super excited. I think one of the things that's interesting about Facing History, and you should know, I've worked in South Africa since 2003. We have a partner, Shakaya. I also started working with Tali Nates in Johannesburg. Um, My first visit to South Africa, she was the person who drove me around in her car to meet um, lots of people. Um, I think many things. First of all, young people are delighted to be trusted with the truth. They have... Thoughts about history, they have thoughts about their own lives, and being asked about not just what they think and how they feel is affirming. It's confidence building, and it's not just what's your opinion on this. Facing History is trying to help them move from opinion to informed judgment, but it's trusting them in a way that's asking them to develop that civic and moral voice. So I think based on classrooms I've seen and conversations with teachers, I mean, you see students get really frustrated by learning about bystander behavior and also people who did terrible things because it is reprehensible. It is scary. It is an affront to who we are as people. At the same time, I think, especially in terms of bystander behavior and some of these things, they develop something like a radical empathy. It's not, I can stand in this person's shoes, but which shoes are they standing in and why? And what does that mean for me? You know, there's not a person who doesn't understand the factors that go into why you don't do anything sometimes. You're afraid you could lose your job. Your family could get hurt. Maybe you think you couldn't do anything. Students go through that whole calculation themselves, and part of what Facing History invites is that question, but what could I do? What could I do? Is there a difference I could make? And that's not just empowering, I think, and exciting, but it also sometimes is sort of like, why aren't more people doing anything? (laughs) You know, and that's sort of at the heart of what we were talking about at the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center. It's, you know, how come, how come we aren't? Dr. Murphy, you,
0: you, you wanting to grow, develop a better world and the
1: refrain never again. Has it become just a refrain? Yeah, in many ways, and I don't even... Here's the sad part about that. I would say that's a refrain for some of us, and some people probably don't even know that is a refrain. So we've lost it. And I think that we've not only lost it as a refrain, but I think that we have to return to why those words? What was it that made people say that? When Raphael Lemkin developed the idea... And the concept of genocide, it came out of horror of the Armenian genocide and the failure of people to act. And then to see again with the Holocaust, look, if we don't do things, this will happen again and again and again and again. And so when we see in the post-World War II period and the creation of the United Nations and the UDHR and the Genocide Convention and other things, people saying there are things we can do to prevent to punish, to shine a light on these bad acts before they get out of control or when they do, to do something about them. And I think what we've seen is there are times when people, generations of people, get um, impassioned and will say, actually for humanity, it can't just be narrow national interest, but for humanity, for the protection of people, we have to figure out a way to make these deeds not just words but then narrow self and national interest and everyday life swallow that up i mean i think that lots of us um are almost uh believe that gen- when genocide happens or when mass violence happens we all have the time and the energy and the patience to pay attention and, and you know, do something about it. But the reality is these things often happen under cover of war, when people are exhausted, when they're stressed, when they're paying attention to other things. Genocide is not convenient, certainly not for the people who are being slaughtered. And so a question for all of us is what does it require when we are so busy, when we're so challenged by our daily lives to care about others. Dr. Murphy, we don't have much time, literally two minutes, but um, in
0: those two minutes, we're facing a world that some have said has never been more divided. Um,
1: How do we create tolerance? Is tolerance a first step? I think one thing we have to do is restore relationships. Relationships are at the heart of democracy. Trust is the glue that binds them. So fundamentally, this isn't just this abstract notion of these divides between people or people in institution or people in democracy or people in the world. It's people. So we have to restore trust. We have to restore truth. We have to have some shared facts, but it also means we can't just be talking to each other. We need to be listening. And I think that, um, you know, there's probably all different definitions of tolerance in some ways, but one form of tolerance is Jacob Bernowski's tolerance or the tolerance of physics, which is um, to reject dogma and certainty. And it doesn't mean there aren't truths. It means there's got to be this space that you hold that says, maybe I'm not so right. Maybe I can stay in the room with you or on the Zoom call and hear you. And you will also hear me. So I think in order to get to these big aspirations, we've got to start with each other.
0: Right. That's, um, big aspirations starting with small steps. Thank you very much for joining me. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Dr. Karen Murphy, the Director of International Strategy for Facing History and Ourselves, a global NGO. Thank you to all of you for joining me. A special thanks to Sianda for producing the show. If there's anything on the show you'd like to comment on, you're always welcome to send me an email on charisse at sajvd.org. Until next week, Shabbat Shalom.
1: Hi FM, your station of choice since two thousand and eight.